Turn in your Bibles or scroll in your Bible app to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to spend our time today. And if you are physically able, would you please, in honor of God's holy word, please stand and follow along as I read Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as scrutiny from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also... They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, we spent our time in the preceding chapter, Acts 16, and looked at how the gospel changes lives. Not just one type of life either. Not just one person or type of person or people who come out of a specific background only, but how the message of the gospel is able to change any life, any heart, any mind, and any soul that encounters it. Heaven won't look like most churches do today. Most churches today, including ours, are made up of a pretty narrow range of people. And by narrow range, I mean this. Most churches are a pretty accurate reflection of the residents that live close by. In fact, if you draw a 20-minute drive time radius around a church building, that's where you'll probably find the vast majority of those who attend your church. And that's the case for us. Now, God has blessed Grace Fellowship with fairly significant growth over the years. But we never wanted to be what I like to refer to as the next Six Flags Over Jesus. So instead of doing that, we decided to do what we could do to reach people where they were, bring the local back to the local church. And so while a church alive is worth the drive, that's a true and nice saying. When you look at what people really do, most people, especially the lost and especially the newly saved, say the church I chose is the church that's close. So heaven is going to look different. Heaven won't reflect a geographical location or a 20-minute drive time radius. Heaven will reflect those for whom Christ was slain. And that's not limited to a 20-minute drive or any geographical location. Revelations 5 and verse 9 tells us that Christ, by his blood, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that's what we saw in Acts 16, right? Last week when we saw the same gospel radically transform the lives of three very different people. Lydia, a seller of purple, a slave girl, and a jailer. Those are three very different types of people. Three very different mindsets, stories, backgrounds, worldviews, but the gospel reached them all. 
Today, I want to show you how the gospel reaches both types of lost people. You say, what do you mean by both types of lost people? I thought there were a variety of types of people, tribes, tongues, nations, and there are. But what I hope to show you today as we spend time looking at Acts chapter 17 is that of all the different lost people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, all those different lost people can be put into two main categories. And once again, the gospel reaches both, and the word of God is again unstoppable. So before we get into our text today in Acts chapter 17, do me a favor, just look a little bit further back in Acts 16 uh, and pick it up in verse 10. And it says this, Acts 16 verse 10 says this, when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11, so sailing from Troas, we made a direct voyage. Now, in case you're missing it, I'm trying to emphasize a specific word. See if you can pick up on that. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And verse 12, uh, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Say it with me. We remained in this city some days. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Skip down to verse 16. Here we go. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. So we, 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 we. This is not a French lesson. All right, what I want you to see is how Paul is writing, because I want to set a backdrop for you under which that you can understand where we are in Acts 17. Because all the we's stop in Acts 16, verse 19. Luke makes a shift from first person plural to third person. Why? Because he's no longer with them. And so the what we did turns into what they did, right? So he's now telling us about what happened as he stayed back at Philippi, which is likely what he did. Because all of a sudden it's not we, he's now talking about what they did. Why he stayed back at Philippi, we don't even know for sure if that's where he stayed. We just know that he wasn't with them in Acts 17. So Maybe he hung out of Philippi because he himself, if you'll remember, was a Gentile. So he would have been immune from that anti-Jewish sentiment that was settling in uh, from all that persecution. So maybe he stayed there to care for the new church. We don't know. But suffice it to say, in Acts 17, uh, Luke is no longer with them. And they have now moved from Philippi all the way to Thessalonica. It's probably a three-day journey. They probably didn't walk because if you look at the distance between Philippi and Thessalonica, it's about 100 miles. And they were just beaten with rods. And so after you're beaten with rods, the last thing you want to do is like power walk it to Thessalonica. So they probably were on horses or something like that and made their way all the way to Thessalonica and there was a synagogue. And if you pick it up in verse 1, you see, excuse me, uh, yeah, the end of verse 1, it says, Paul... Uh, no, verse two, I can get this. Paul, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. As was his custom, Paul goes into the synagogue. This was his thing. He did this often, and we'll continue to see Paul do that throughout the book of Acts. He goes into synagogues and reasons with Jews. Now, this wasn't preaching. I think that's an important point to make. This wasn't preaching. This wasn't monologue. The Greek word there says that they were reasoning, reasoning with him. It was dialegumai, which is where we get the word dialogue. Okay, so this was a conversation that he was having with people. They would ask questions and he would give answers. They would say, that can't be. And he would say, it not only can be, but it had to be. And he was having a conversation with them from the word of God. And you might say, I wonder what about Right? There's a lot of words of God. I wonder what they asked. Well, the text tells us there were two things Paul focused on while there. Look at verse 3. He was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That's number one. And also saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Why would Paul focus on these things? Well, we don't have time to look there today, but if you looked at 1 Corinthians, you would see that Paul in chapter 1 talks about how people had trouble accepting that the Messiah would have to die, and especially that he would have to die, uh, that he would die the type of death that he died on the cross as a criminal, full of humiliation and shame. The Jews kind of thought the Messiah would be some political leader who would make 
who would like restore their fortunes and kill their enemies. And basically, if they were wearing hats, they probably would have said, make Israel great again. So the thought that the Messiah would die a humiliating criminal's death on a cross was a stumbling block to them, right? They're like, this can't be him. Do you see how he died naked and ashamed with all sorts of like feces and horrible things all over him as he stood there on a cross and died like in between two thieves? This surely can't be him. And so Paul is focusing on that, saying, don't let that rule him out. Don't let him, that rule him out of your mind just because he had to die that way that you think that he wouldn't be the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 1 says the fact that Jesus died on a cross was a stumbling block to them, to the Jews. The Gentiles really didn't care about it all that much and just kind of thought it was kind of dumb, right? Messiah, sin, death, resurrection, all kind of crazy And so that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 says that Christ crucified was what? A stumbling block to the Jews and just foolishness to the Gentiles. Like this is just crazy town. So Paul's in a synagogue and he's talking with the Jews about these two things. First, hey, it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That does, don't rule him out. That actually rules him in. It was necessary for him to do that. And secondly, having made that point, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you He's that guy. He is the Christ. So pick it up in verse 4. So it says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and no, I hate that, and not a few of the leading women. Like, Luke, can't you say a lot? <laughs> not a few. It trips me up every time. Anyway, moving on. Verse 5 But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. And so, not unlike today, people were upset. They didn't like what was happening. And so what do they do? They form a mob. They turn the city into an uproar. We see this all the time. You see this on the news. People are upset about something. And so they do things that are not goal-oriented, not solution-oriented. We don't like what just happened. What are we going to do? We're going to burn stuff. Uh, Okay, is that going to change what's happened? No. Why are you going to do it? Burn stuff anyway. All right, that's cool if you want to do that. So they get this mob of people. And if you'll notice, it's not just the Jews that are upset. They also what? They also reach out to wicked people. Verse 5, taking some wicked men of the rabble. So right now they're like, we don't care. We don't care. You're wicked. That's fine. You're right. Let's just go. Let's go. Just join us. Let's do something about this. Let's form, let's for, let's, let's form a, a mob and let's set the city in an uproar. And they attack the house of Jason. You say, who's Jason? I don't know. We have no idea who Jason is. We only know how Jason served. And he was obviously one who was giving safe haven to Paul and Silas, which we'll read about a little later, which is why they went there. Because they're after Paul and Silas. And they're like, well, let's, we're probably going to find him in this house. Verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason, and someone's like, well, Paul and Silas aren't here, but Jason is. All right, get him. Drag some of the other people who are before them. Let's take them to the city authorities. Verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down, which is kind of ironic, right? These men who are resting peacefully in their home have turned the world upside down as the mob is going around with, pitch, with like pitchforks and torches. These men have turned the world upside down is what they're saying. They've come here also, verse 7, and Jason, that guy, has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, things just got real, right? Before it was, we don't like them, we wish they weren't here, blah, blah, blah. They're, They're turning the world upside down, whatever, it's fine. But things just got real, because to say that there is another king is a serious accusation. To acknowledge any other king but Caesar was one of the most serious crimes in the Roman Empire. That's actually the only reason the Romans crucified Jesus. That's the only reason the Romans crucified Jesus. Before then, they were like, whatever. You guys are a bunch of loons. This guy seems kind of a cut above when it comes to lunacy, but we're not going to crucify him. He didn't do anything. We're like, well, he claims to be a king. And that gets the attention of Pontius Pilate. We won't go there today, but John 19 and verse 12, it says, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And Pilate's like, checkmate, you win. Now all of a sudden he cares, and that's why Jesus dies. So what they're being accused of is a serious thing. This just got very real for Jason because he's being accused of harboring 
a criminal. Verse 8 says the people and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. But verse 9 reminds us of the old adage, and that is money talks. Why? Because when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They're really turning the world upside down. We hate what they're doing. They have money. All right, I mean, everything's negotiable. Like, we can work this out. I mean... You have a lot of money. So this was probably some sort of pledge or some sort of bail, right? That they would have said, well, let them go if you promise to not do this and you pay us this amount of money. So they pay money and they let them go. Pick it up in verse 10. The brothers immediately send Paul and Silas away by night, right? And they're like, you can't keep preaching here. Let me tell you what just happened to Jason. It's not going to be cool. If you preach here, they're going to come after him. We're going to send you away. So send them away by night and they go off to Berea, what's the first thing they do at the end of verse 10? They go into a Jewish synagogue, right? That's Paul's thing. Verse 11 says, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What makes them more noble? Well, the lack of pitchforks, right? The lack of anger, that's something. But what makes them more noble is that they're actually seeking Right? Paul finds them still lost, but seeking. They, they receive the word with eagerness. That's the Greek word prothumia, which is like a forwardness of mind. They're kind of, they're leaning in. They're carefully listening. They want to know if this is really true. This is a big deal to them. So they're searching the scriptures. How often? Verse 11, daily. This is really on their minds and hearts. And God sends Paul and Silas at just the right time to help them understand the word is true and right. So, verse 12, many of them therefore believed, here we go again, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But then the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. So they took the mob there. They agitated and stirred up the crowds. The brothers immediately send Paul off and off he goes to Athens. So that's basically what happens in a nutshell in the text that we're looking at today. Earlier, I proposed that although the kingdom of heaven will be made of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, they'll all come out of two categories of lostness, if you will. And those are the two categories we see here. Some people are actively seeking, and some people are not. Some people are actively seeking. This is on their heart. It's on their mind. There's an emptiness. There's a a void. There's something that they lack, and they want to know where they can get that hope and help. They're looking. They might be looking for the scriptures. They might be exploring religion. They're seeking. And then there's other people who are just stubborn, opposed, indifferent, uninterested. But what I want you to see here is that both the Thessalonians and the Bereans were reached by the same means, God's word. You can be sure you have everything you need to reach the stubborn and the seeking with the word of God. Because the word of God is unstoppable. Acts 17, verse 2. Paul, what? Reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Skip down to verse 11. Now we're in Berea. These Jews were more noble than those in in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed. The stubborn Thessalonians and the seeking Bereans were both reached by the same means, God's word. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 and following says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But verse 13 says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No creature is hidden from the sight of God's word. No creature is hidden from the sight of God. And God's word can be used to reach anyone, anyone, whether they're seeking or whether they're not. What's the best way to remind yourself of this truth? The best way to remind yourself of the power of the word of God is by experiencing it yourself regularly by feeding on God's word consistently. 
and you're like, this is a good opportunity for a bathroom break. It's the read the Bible thing. We hear this often. I understand, but stick with me. I have a theory. I think many Christians, maybe most, understand the Bible is a great, great book. It's rare that you'll find a Christian and you're like, do you love the Bible? And they're like, it's all right. Most are like, yeah, it's a great book. That's pretty much roundly accepted among Christians. They know there are answers there. They know there's truth to be gleaned. They know there's, a, there's hope to be found, solutions to problems, answers to questions, all of that stuff. And so they consult it when they need an answer. And maybe that's you. You know where your Bible is. Dusted it off, brought it with you to church this morning. You know where that app is on your phone. It's buried with the like Candy Crush and all the other things that you don't really ever use anymore. It's back there. I'm not even saying you're unfamiliar with it or you don't believe it. You do. That's why you grab it when you need it. But that's just the thing. If you only grab it when you need it, you're living under the false notion that there are times when you don't need it. Right? If you only grab it to, to, and you're, you're treating it more as this reference book, right? Right within the word reference is the word refer. So you only refer to it when you, I need to look up something. It's kind of like a glorified encyclopedia. For those of you who don't know what encyclopedias are. Before Wikipedia, we used to have 20 volumes sitting on a shelf, usually Britannica, and we would look to these books for things, for, for fun facts or for research or stuff like that. We would look at these books for things. This is pre-internet. And you would go to the library, you'd own a set of encyclopedias, and that's where you'd go to do your research because you couldn't just pull things up. Sometimes we treat the Bible just like a really good reference book. I'm not saying it's not a really good reference book. I'm saying it's better than that. And I didn't consult Encyclopedia Britannica every day for my health and well-being. That would be odd. I just consulted it when I needed something. Otherwise, kind of useless to me. Took up a lot of space on the shelf. If you're only consulting the Bible when you need it, because it's a really good reference book, you're not going to be reminded of the power that it has to change lives. You'll still like it. Found my answer. Love this thing. But that transformational power that's, that, that is alive from the book that you open, and it's not because when I open it, it glows or something, or it like dances its way off the shelf, but the power of the Word of God to change my life happens when I'm doing my regular Bible reading. I'm just reading the Bible. And I'm like six verses in, and all of a sudden I read something that I didn't look for, but it was there. And the Lord used it to hit me where I'm at, to convict me, to encourage me, to lift me up when I'm down, to show me where I'm off, and to set my feet back, my feet back on the right path. That's, and that's really cool, because then you're just reading your Bible, just doing your thing. Why are you reading your Bible? I'm reading my Bible because I'm alive and it's a Tuesday. Are you looking for something specific? Nope. Just reading my Bible, and boom! Wow, God used his word to show me something, to convict me of sin, to encourage me in my walk. In some way, shape, or form, God's word met me where I am. But that's not going to happen if you just refer to it. It's only going to happen if you have a regular, consistent diet of God's word in your life. That's when you'll see God use it in your life in ways you never thought possible. Quality time is a byproduct of quantity time. I mean, you can hang out with your friends on special occasions, right? Holidays, birthdays, graduations, you're all hanging out. Not a bad thing. You'll have a good time. But if that's the only time you see each other, it's not a sin. You're not likely to have quality time because you're all there surrounding an event. And you might have a one-off conversation that's helpful, but if you're only getting together when there's a reason to get together, right? You'll have a good time. You'll play cornhole. You'll enjoy some cake. You'll have some good food. But you're probably not going to have the quality time that would happen if you saw this certain group of friends or that person regularly. And life is short and we're busy. You can't always see people all the time. But you leave wishing you didn't always see that person just at that occasion, right? I, 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 oh, man, I wish, we, I wish we hung out more. I mean, you, can't just, you can't just always do that. Quality time is a byproduct of quantity time. It's the same with parenting. It's the same with marriage. If I'm not having 
quantity time with my kids, like jumping at opportunities just to have time with them, grabbing one as I head to the store, having a dinner together, living normal life together, it's hard to have that quality time just on that family vacation, right? 52 weeks in a year, we're going to make up for lost time in this one seven-day stretch. I'm not saying we won't have a good time. We're going to have a blast. Have a blast. But that's supposed to be something that we, that's like the icing on the cake that we're building upon a foundation of just quantity time. Just, just living life together, that we hang out together because quality time is a byproduct of quantity time. Married couples who spend zero time together on a regular basis usually have trouble catching up on date nights. There's just so much to catch up on. And you kind of talk, but then eventually you just kind of... Because quality time... That special date night should be a byproduct of quantity time. 10 minutes here, 25 minutes there, 20 minutes here. Even when married couples have sex, strive to be physically intimate and succeed, but they still feel a little distant. Why? Because quality time is a byproduct of quantity time. the same with God's word. You want to see God use the word in your life? Don't treat it like a reference book that you rarely use. Watch the quality of your time with God be a byproduct of the quantity time that you give him, having consistent times in God's word. And that's going to look different for every single one of us, right? I know someone who spends minimum four hours in God's word Every day. And that works really well for him. I might add he's retired. But it works really well for him. Great. Precious few of us can probably do that. I don't care whether it's tons of hours. Just a few minutes, an hour, 20 minutes. I care more about consistency, honestly. Consistency. I hope you don't just read the word of God when you have two hours. And if you don't have two hours, you're not going to read it. No. Quality time. You might get a huge, a huge break on a day off where you're like, wow, time just flew by. I've been spending time in God's word. I can't believe that happened. Great. But when you've got school and when you've got work, if you're just going to wait for that time when you have this 90 minutes of unhurried time and the candle is lit and the coffee is brewing and the sun looks so perfect and all that other stuff, keep waiting. It doesn't happen often. But have quantity time, meaning Let's have things more often, times more often when we're spending time in God's word because then you're going to see the quality of the time you, you, you spend with him go up as a result of the quantity of time you spend with him. What does this have to do with reaching the lost? You'll be reminded of the power of the word of God to change lives if it's not been too long ago since it's changed your life. You're not having to look back on when you were saved years ago or months ago, whenever you were saved. You have to look back like a few weeks ago when you were reading, just reading the word of God and all of a sudden, poof, wow, thank you, Lord. I needed that. And so you'll think of God's word when reaching the lost immediately instead of eventually because it hasn't been long since God's used the word to reach you. We're told in Romans 15, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That hope comes from God's word. And so what about you? Who do you think is outside the reach of God's word? Now, if this was a test, and the answer, oh, I know that one, no one. But really, who have you thought, yeah, that's, that person is so lost, so far gone, so stubborn, so against God, so indifferent, so just, they don't even care, so unbelieving, so unconvinced, I could never reach their heart and mind. True? You cannot. God's word can. And he can do that through you. You say, I've tried, I've failed. You probably have. You probably have. You probably tried. You've probably been not, with met, not been met with much success. I've tried. I've failed. They refuse me. They refuse him. I'm done. Does God is sovereign to leave it in his hands? I just want to point out to you that Paul 
like did not think that way at all. At all. He was well aware of the fact that God must save in God alone. He was well aware of the fact that we're saved by grace through faith and that it's a gift from God. He wrote those words, but he never just said, you know what? Too stubborn, too hard, I'm giving up. Let's not forget what we've seen thus far. I mean, in Acts 13, Paul was opposed by Cyprus, by the Jew, at Cyprus by the Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus. Paul leaves, goes to Pisidian Antioch. When the Jews saw the crowds listening to Paul, they were filled with jealousy. This is not his first rodeo in Thessalonica. They were filled with jealousy, began contradicting the things that he was saying. Later, the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. That's all in one chapter. Then they move on to Iconium, where the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, Acts 14 and verse 2. They flee Iconium, and Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, where Paul very nearly lost his life. It's not been an easy road for Paul. In spite of all of that and his recent persecution to Philippi where he was beaten by rods, uh, Paul's still hanging out in synagogues as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, they were a week apart, he's committed to reason with them from the scriptures. Sometimes we give up on the stubborn because we think they're just too closed. Too closed. What can I say? What can I do? Their heads are hard. Their skulls are thick. But Paul never lost his passion for the souls of his people, despite how stubborn and straight up mean that they were to him. Other times we don't pursue the seeking because we think they'll probably find God on their own. Right? I mean, they're from a Christian home. They grew up in church. They're the pastor's kids. They've never missed a youth camp. They've been in Sunday school since the moment they exited the womb. So they'll find them. Sure they will. But that's not what we see Paul do, right? Paul doesn't show up at Berea and they're like, hey, whoa, you guys are all searching the scriptures. All right, well, I'm going to go. I've got other things to do. You'll find them. See you later. That's not what he does. I mean, I'm sure they'll find him. They've got scriptures. Am I right? It's the 21st century. We have access to all types of information. They can get a Bible app. No. Paul still opens the word of God with them doesn't miss out on that opportunity so that he can reason with them, talk with them, open the scriptures with them. And God uses the word of God with the stubborn Thessalonians and the seeking Bereans and saves both. Who have you forgotten that God can reach with his word? Who have you stopped trying to reach with the word of God Because you see them as unreachable. The unbeliever who is stubborn. That lost person who's seeking, but they're just looking for love in all the wrong places. They're not going to be like, oh, there's, they're kind of seeking, but they're more full of philosophy. And they're looking at all these religions. That's, ah, whatever. If God wants to save him, he'll save him. That young lady who's close to all things Christian, the man who is really interested, and you're like, he's fine, whatever. The old man who thinks as good as outweighed as bad and doesn't know that he needs Jesus as his date with death draws closer. The elderly lady who's so lonely, so lost, and is looking and looking and looking and looking and looking for peace. Both the stubborn and the seeking are reached by the same means. People like you and me who have been reached with the gospel and are being changed by the scriptures, who are willing to reach others with the same word of God that reaches us and changes us regularly. And so if you're going to do this, you need to prepare. That's point number two. You need to prepare to engage the lost with hope and help from God's word. We see in Acts 17 verses 2 and 3 that Paul, we're told Paul did three things actually. Uh, that he reasoned with them, that he explained things, and that he proved things. So let's unpack those three things. Uh, First, he reasoned with them. We said that before, right? That's that Greek word for dialogue. So think dialogue, not monologue. Hey, I'm all for preaching, right? I got kind of a vested interest in that. Okay, so I'm all for preaching. God uses it. We see that throughout the book of Acts. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It most certainly works. I'm all for street preaching. I'm all for standing on top of a box to make yourself heard and for you preaching the gospel at any opportunity that you have. God uses that. That's just not what's going on here. What's going on here is 
is, is dialogue, not monologue. The first century church did both. I want you to invite unbelievers to church. I hope you do. I hope they come. But I don't want you to think that's the only way people hear and respond to truth. Oh, they, only, they, they, can, they can only respond to truth if they hear it from you, Pastor Peter, if they hear it from you, Pastor Brad, if they hear it from people who've studied and studied and studied and studied. They can respond to that truth. I hope that they do. Don't be fooled to thinking that that's the only way. Because it's just not. Our text today is an example of Paul not inviting someone to, to anything, but having conversations with people. Churches once a week. Community groups once a week. They're great. That's fine. But you speak with people every day. Every day. I love come and see evangelism. It's not bad. It's not the lower road. Real Christians don't. No, no, no. It's great. You should do that. It's very, very effective. Many of you are Christians today because someone said to you, come and see. Come to this thing. Come to my church. Come talk to my friend. Come and see. Acts 17 just is something different. It's go and tell evangelism. And quite frankly, you have more opportunities to do that on any given week than anything else because you have opportunities to speak with people on a regular basis. Reason with them. Think dialogue, not just monologue. And then there's two other things that he did. He explained things to them and he proved things to them. In parentheses in your outline, I put, uh, think big reveal, not just fun facts. So when we want to explain things to people, we don't want to just like drop fun facts about something that's our favorite little trivia thing or something that's really heavy on our hearts. We don't want to just do that. We want to get to Jesus. Like the goal is to get to Jesus. That doesn't mean that every conversation you have and his name doesn't come up, that that like doesn't count at all. But I'm saying when it comes to wanting to reach the lost, let's not just reach the lost by something that we're all salty about and call it salt and light. That's not just, that's not what we're supposed to do. This is just on our minds and on our hearts. And we spoke about the latest issue. And so we drop that little bomb in their laps and thinking God's going to use that. He might, but our goal needs to be to get to Jesus. Our goal needs to be to prove things to them. Answer their question instead of proving your favorite points. And so I want to say this, because I have to be aware of this myself. Beware of your soapbox. Beware of your soapbox. Most people have certain things they're passionate about. And that might not be a bad thing. In fact, if you're a Christian, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and say it's probably a wonderful thing. I'll even tell you that I think the Lord laid that on your heart for a reason. But you need to be wary of letting the biggest thing on your heart being the most frequent thing that comes out of your mouth. Because if it's not the gospel, it's not going to save. And most single-issue crusaders, right, people who have like, if they're awake, they're talking about blank, like you fill in the blank. Single-issue crusaders fail to point to Jesus. They fail to point to Jesus. They point to the issues for which they're on a crusade. They might be great issues, but they don't get to Jesus. They're just talking about the issue. I mean, I'm being salt and light, no, like, but not really. I feel like a lost person could have done exactly what you just did. But our goal is to get to Jesus. As you're probably aware, I'm pretty, something that weighs on my heart a lot, I'm pretty passionate about the sanctity of human life, that God has created all people with his image everywhere from the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between. But I'm particularly and especially passionate about it as it relates to the unborn. I hope you are too. But I don't preach the gospel of life from the moment of conception because that's not going to save anyone from hell. It will save babies, but let's not call it the gospel. I hope you understand what I'm saying. There's a difference. There's a difference between the, the issue that's most on my mind, that even weighs in my heart, that I use to reach people with the gospel, but I've got to get to Jesus and not just prove my point. It might not be bad to prove your point, but please understand, for example, for this issue, there's a whole secular pro-life movement, super active, very successful. So it's not uniquely Christian. Your issue, I'm sure you look at through a biblical worldview, but don't call that evangelism. And remember that our goal is to get to people with Jesus. Paul reasoned with people. He answered their questions. And you see it right there in the text in verse 3. He explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Christ 
to suffer and to rise from the dead. He reasoned, he explained, and he proved, and it's like just a few words later, boom, Christ. Boom, Jesus. Boom, gospel. He's using those opportunities not just to talk about the thing that's most on his mind and heart, but to talk about the thing that should be on their mind and heart, and that is their need of a Savior. You probably have strong convictions about things that are worth thinking through and caring about. But listen to me. Listen. Don't let those good things be a stumbling block standing in the way of the great thing, which is the gospel. And that's what the lost really need to hear. And so while I'm debating someone on when life begins in the womb, which I have very strong feelings about, or while you're showing people why the earth is really thousands of years old instead of billions of years old, or why you educate your children the way you do, or what you really think of vaccines, or politics, or gun control, or whether you think they should build a wall, draw a line, or build a wall with a door, and you're talking about all of these things, you have to ask yourself, was that the best use of the opportunity that I just had to talk with a lost person? Our goal is to get to Jesus. If you think the best way to do that is by way of going to the U.S.-Mexico border first or sharing your latest meme about Greta, you might want to reconsider your approach. Paul reasoned, he explained, he proved Christ. Christ, Christ, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus when he's talking to the Jews. He showed people their sin, pointed to salvation in Christ. Showed people their sin, pointed to the answer. Didn't just show people their sin and walk off. It was always a means to an end. First Peter 3, verses 15 and following says, But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So there are ways you can prepare yourself for these interactions with lost people, whether they're the stubborn or the seeking. Brushing up on your apologetics is helpful, no doubt. When I notice the Lord seems to be causing me to cross paths with a certain type of people or a certain people group or people who are struggling in a certain area, I actively... Study the word to see how I can best care for the people he's bringing me. It's like, okay, Lord, it's like my third interaction that I've had with blank in the last several weeks. Like, this is kind of a thing. I'm seeing a pattern. I'm going to dive deep. Hopefully you can show me how I can better care for, better reach people. But preparing your facts needs to be done against the backdrop of a heart that's consistently being impacted by the word of God. And I've listed for you in your outline four things I think you should do in order to prepare to share God's word with people who need it. Whether they're actively seeking answers, like the Bereans, or committed in their stubbornness, or they just don't care, like the Thessalonians. First thing I think you need to do is to confess sin and repent. Confess sin and repent. First Peter 2 and verse 1 says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first thing we need to do is come to the word seeking to personally change and grow before we help others change and grow. Listen to me. I'm not saying we don't do anything until we're perfect. Oh, I I was going to share the gospel with this person, but on my way to share it with them, I stubbed my toe and let out an expletive. I I can't. I'm just not going to talk about it. I have sin. We'll never share the gospel with people if we're waiting until we're sinless. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying our first interaction with the scriptures shouldn't be, so how can I use this for them? How can I use this for her? How can I use this for him? It could be, how can I glean truth for me that I need to grow? We see something similar. It's not in your outline, but in Matthew 7, talks about removing the log from your eye before you remove the speck from others. People read that all the time and think the moral of the story is you can't remove specks because you've got a log. It's not true. It's about order. First, remove the telephone pole from your eye. And then it says literally, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from someone else's. 
if you leave the telephone, I mean, picture it. It's a, it's a great illustration by our Savior. If you leave that telephone pole in and you go to try to take specs, you're going to be smacking people. You're going to hurt people. You'll hurt people if your goal is to remove specs before removing logs from your eye. And so there's an order. God says, first, take care of you. Don't be perfect, but take care of you before me, and then let's go and take care of them. And so that's why I think the first thing you need to do is to come before the Lord and confess, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need help. I'm struggling. I want to be more like you. I want to be less like me. I don't want to do the things that I've done before. Help me. Help me. I long to be like the Jesus that I want to tell other people about. We look to God's word to change us first. And out of the overflow of a recently changed heart, our mouth speaks. Matthew 12 and verse 34. Because we've tasted that the Lord is good. Confess sin. Next, commit to diligence. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, right there, the first three words. Do what? Do your best. What if, I, what if I make a mistake? Oh, you will. You're supposed to do what? Your best. Do your best. Commit to diligence. What does that look like? For my retired friend, it looks like four hours a day. For you, it may not look like that if that's not the season of life you're in. But you're committing to diligence. I'm going to be as diligent as I can by making the word of God a regular part of my life. So that I can show myself as one who's approved. Not perfect. Approved. As I try to rightly divide, literally in the Greek, cutting it straight is what it says. As I try to rightly divide the word of truth as I speak to other people. I'm going to confess sin. I'm going to commit to diligence. Then I'm going to carry out what I'm learning. James 1 and verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And if you read read on in James chapter 1, he says the person who looks at the word and then does nothing about it, it's like the person who looks in a mirror and does nothing about it. The vast majority of us today, I think, looked in the mirror and did something about it. A couple of us didn't, but I'm not going to point. And so when we look in the mirror and we see and we kind of like, you know, especially as you get older, it's not like you're just looking in the mirror just because it's kind of your thing to do. You're looking in the mirror to like assess the damage that happened while you slept. Ah! And you look in the mirror and you realize, oh, the night was not kind to me. And then you do something to change. Otherwise, look in the mirror and go, ah, that's rough. All right, pray for the people who see me today. And you just leave. It's the same thing with the word of God. We look at the word of God so that we can do something with what we see. And so we confess sin. We commit to diligence. And then we do the things. We carry out what we've learned. Because that's what God's called us to do. We confess, we commit, we carry out. And then we coach someone else. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'm telling you, one of the best ways for you to become more familiar with the word of God and reaching out to people is by reaching out to people. Beware of analysis paralysis. I don't know if I'm ready. I feel like I'm not ready. Bro, you're not. You're not. True. I think, I don't know if I'm, if I, I don't know, I just can't. Girl, you're never, you're not ready. I get it. You don't know what's going to happen. You can't see the future. But we do our best, do your best, and then engage. Entrust the things that you're learning to someone else. Why? Because God can work in their heart and they can entrust it to someone else. And so they can entrust it to someone else. Right? It's not a pyramid scheme. It's evangelism. It's how God works in people's lives. As we seek to confess, to commit, to carry out, and to coach. Great verse in Ezra 7 and verse 10 that I came, uh, that I found this, this week. It just wasn't on my mind. Look at that. For Ezra had set his heart to what? Study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Finally, you need to pray for God to work in the hearts and minds of the lost you're trying to reach. God alone can save. See, reaching the lost with the word of God, is a, it's a tricky thing. Tricky in this sense, because 
You might leave here all fired up thinking like you need to convince people that the word of God is true and can be trusted, but you can't. Listen, people don't lack belief in the word of God for lack of evidence. Some people think they do. It's not true. We're saved by grace through what? Through faith. Not saved by grace through facts. Saved by grace through faith. And that's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. So without that gift of faith, I don't care how many facts you line up in front of people. If they don't have that gift of faith, they're not going to believe it. They're just going to ignore it. So don't stop trying. I'm just saying start trying and bathe yourselves in prayer. Ask the Lord to go before you. Ask the Lord to prepare people's hearts and minds. Because if any growth takes place in their life, that's going to be because he's doing it. John 6, says, no one, not some people, but no one, not especially the really lost, the really secular, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So you're doing all of this, sharing God's word, sharing truth that you know from the Bible, all against the backdrop of knowing you can't control whether this person's going to believe or not. And so you need God to go before you God to work in the hearts and minds of those people whom you're trying to reach so that you show up at just the right time. Whether they're stubborn like the Thessalonians or seeking like the Bereans, God arranges that perfectly just like he did for you. So I don't know your story. I don't know how God reached you or through whom God reached you. But listen to me. He was working on it long before that person got there. Maybe you can look back on your own story and see, yes, I can see God was preparing me for that moment. He went ahead of that person. He went ahead of that book. He went ahead of that Bible. He, he, he did something to prepare me to respond to the gospel. And so we set out on mission to reach people, and we do so saying, oh, God, help. Do something in the lives of these people not, even, not for my good, not even for their good, but primarily do it for your glory so that your name might be praised. Father, we come before you acknowledging the mission that you've sent us on, the mission that you've called us to, to do, and knowing straight up, despite the fact that we've been called to that, we can't succeed. Uh, you're calling us to go in a direction and to do things that we cannot, we cannot do. I and mean, we, we can't, we lack what we need to do that. And so we ask you, oh God, change our hearts, change our minds. As a result of the time that we spend feeding on your word. And go ahead of us. Prepare that way. Make straight a highway for you as we seek to share truth with people from your word out of the overflow of a heart that has recently been changed by you. Do it, Lord, for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name.